Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said just a moment ago, when we look at these first two verses of this first chapter of Colossians, we might be tempted to say, well, this is just the standard greeting that Paul had when he wrote to churches, and he did that. Paul had never been to Colossae. He's sitting in a prison cell, and he writes this letter to this church at Colossae and addresses them, and he tells them by what authority he is addressing them. He is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word apostle has the idea of one, not only one who is sent out, apostello, but it also means he is sent out with the authority and the ability to do the job that he has been sent out to do. So he declares that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's very important to us. It was very important to them as we begin to look at words that the apostles like Paul and and the others used when they spoke to these churches. Now, just at the outset, I'm going to ask this question, and I'm going to answer it, by the way. I'm not going to ask you to answer it. But what right does a man have to stand in a pulpit and address the members of one of the Lord's churches? Only the fact that he has perceived the call of God upon his life to do so. And then secondly, only to the degree that he presents in his delivery, the word of God. Amen. I still haven't gotten around to changing our sign, but one of these days it's going to read, we focus on God's word, or our focus is on God's word. I think that's the way it's going to be worded. We don't preach politics here. We don't preach philosophy, psychology, psychiatry, or any of those things. We preach the word of God. Amen. I believe the one thing that our world, that our nation that our state, that this city needs, folks, is to see real Christians, Amen. okay? You know that there's a difference between professed Christians and real Christians. It's hard to find many people in America, and especially this part of the country, who will not say to you, well, I'm a Christian. And sometimes I think that's just an easy way of saying I go to church occasionally or maybe something like that. But what is a real Christian? A real Christian is like those folks who are mentioned in the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, the 26th verse, when it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Why were they called Christians? Because they lived, they acted, they thought, they conducted themselves so much like the Lord Jesus Christ that the world looked at them and said, you're just little Christ, that's all you are. It was actually a term that was given in derision. And so we ought to be so much like the Lord Jesus. I've told you before, I don't call myself a Christian. You will make that determination. The world will make that determination by looking at my life. I am a child of God. Faith, I've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. I've made that profession public. I've been scripturally baptized. I'm a member of one of the Lord's churches. But by looking at my life, you will determine whether I'm like Christ in my life or not. 
And so that's a very special term to me, and I try to be very careful with that term. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, remember the Apostle Paul warned Timothy that in the last days there would be those who had merely the form of godliness, but they denied the power of godliness in their living and by their lives. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of times today, is that we've got people who are professing to be Christians, but they've got no power. We need godly power in our lives to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that explains sometimes why we're ineffective in our witness. You know, if you don't realize that you have both the authority and the ability to witness of Jesus Christ, you're going to be a little iffy about your witness. But if you're saved, if you're a child of God, especially a child of God and as a member of this church, not only do you have the authority and the ability, you have the duty to witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times the Apostle Paul in his introductions, in the beginning of his letters, gives us some good information, gives us some good instruction, and he's done so here. And I want to take these two verses, the first two verses of the book of Colossians, and talk about five great truths of the Christian life. It's in the second verse. Five great truths of the Christian life. And you look at how he starts out, to the saints. And we're just going to stop right there. See, the first great truth of the Christian life is that our calling is to be holy. Our calling is to be holy. This word saints comes from a word that means holy. He's referring to these who are saved in Colossae. He's referring to us today as God's holy ones. Now, we often get the idea that holy means something other than what we think it means. A lot of times we think holy means without sin. Holy just really means to be separated. By the way, did you ever stop to think of your brothers and sisters in Christ as God's saints, as God's holy ones, as God's little ones? Jesus took a little child one time, and he said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. See, we're just, we have this childlike faith in the Lord. We trust him. We depend upon him. But Jesus said this also, Whatsoever you've done to the least of one of these, my little ones, you've done it unto me. How we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ shows our attitude and how we treat the Lord Jesus. But let's get back to this idea of holy. Let's get back to this idea of being separated. Holy talks about our calling as children of God. We are called to live separated lives. Now that doesn't mean we just can't have anything to do with people who are not saved. We can't go out in the world and all of that sort of things. But we're talking about being separated to the Lord Jesus. See, we are to be in this world, and we know this, but we're not to be of this world. We are not to live worldly lives. We are not to be worldly individuals as we go through this life. And when we talk about this world, we're talking about this world system. We're talking about this world's way of thinking, this world's attitude, this world's way of doing things. We're not to be like the rest of the world. Sadly, today there are churches who are trying to attract the world by being like the world. You cannot do that. Somebody said this, and I've shared this just recently on our Facebook page. A Christian is not ruined by living in the world, but by the world living in him. Amen. Living in the world is not going to destroy your testimony, but when you start to let the world live in you, you lose your testimony. You lose your effective witness as a child of God. Somebody said this, as long as the boat is in the water, 
Folks, everything's all right, isn't it? But what happens when the water starts getting in the boat? Then you've got problems. And so we are called to be different from the world. Sadly, too many of God's people today want to get entangled and they want to get entwined with the world. We are supposed to be different. We're supposed to be separate. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, the apostle Paul told young Timothy, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Can you imagine being in a war? Being in a foxhole somewhere and you're not thinking about the enemy. You're not thinking about fighting the battle. Your mind's all the way back at home and wondering what my wife's doing or what my sister's doing or my best friend's doing about right now. When you're in war, you're taught to keep your mind on what's going on. No man that worth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. How can we live separated lives? How can we live holy lives? We live in a corrupt world. We live in a sin-filled world. Listen to what the Lord said through the Apostle Paul to that church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's the first thing we can do. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. He said there's got to be some difference. Light and dark don't mix. Good and evil don't mix. The temple of Belial and the temple of the Lord Jesus don't mix. And there has to be a difference if we're going to be what we ought to be as children of God. Now we need to focus, and I was sharing this with Joni when we were here this morning, we need to focus on what I call a positive separation. Have you ever noticed how many people are concerned about a negative separation? What do you mean a negative separation? Well, we're always looking down at people. Well, this person does that. The, the world does this. These, and things that are wrong are wrong. Anything God's word says is wrong is sin. It's sin, okay? But there can be a positive separation also. What do you mean by a positive separation? We put our focus not so much on avoiding and condemning the sin of the world, but of being like Christ. But Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Jesus said, learn of me. What do you know about Jesus? What do you know about the lifestyle of Jesus? Now look at this battery up on the screen. What do you notice about that battery? The negative's down at the bottom, the positive's up at the top. Think about this. The closer you get to the positive, the farther you are from the negative. The closer we get to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry as if we're close to him about sitting around condemning things to avoid being like the world. We just get like the Lord Jesus. We live like him. We love like him. We walk like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. Don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. If you will go to the positive, you'll just get farther away from the negative. Amen. We sing that song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and his grace. We must remember these things. Everywhere we go, folks, our Lord goes with us. Everything we say, he hears. Everything we do, he sees and he knows. And because of that, that should cause us as his people to say this, I will go nowhere I cannot take Jesus. I will say nothing I would not want him to hear. I will do nothing that I would not want him to see and to know about. We are called to live holy lives. He says, saints. But then he says this, faithful to the saints and faithful. See, our walk is to be faithful. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to be faithful? I've shared this with you recently, but I'm going to do it again. If your car fails you about two or three times a month, do you think it's faithful? If your refrigerator, you know, I figured this out. Refrigerators will always quit the evening after you've just gone to the grocery store that afternoon. That is an unwritten law of the universe, that a refrigerator will quit and everything in it will spoil right after you went to the grocery store. But if your refrigerator doesn't work occasionally, do you consider it faithful? I've shared this one, I know. If a man or a woman cheats on their spouse only twice a month, are they considered faithful? No. We have a standard of faithfulness. What does faithful mean? Faithful means to be trustworthy. It means to be worthy of confidence. It means to be dependable. Webster defines it as steadfast in affection or allegiance, firm in adherence to promises or in observance of duty. The American Heritage Dictionary says it is adhering firmly and devotedly to a person, a cause, or an idea, loyal, worthy of trust or belief, reliable. Listen to this one. A faithful reproduction of the portrait. A faithful reproduction of the portrait. See, for a believer, faithfulness occurs when we reproduce what we see in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we learn of him and we begin to live like him. Because Jesus always remained true to the Father at all times. Amen. And so we're to be faithful. That's what faithful is. I heard a story about an old preacher I don't know why I always hear about old preachers, but that's what I hear about. I never hear any stories about young preachers. I did when I was young, but now they're old. But I heard about an old preacher who was rebuked by a deacon before services on a Sunday morning. And the deacon said this, Pastor, there's something wrong with your preaching. We only had one person added to the church last year, and that was just a little boy. And the preacher said this, and preachers feel this way. Let me share this with you. The preacher said, I feel it all. God knows I've done my best to do my duty. And that preacher came close to resigning that morning. But after services, that young boy came up to that preacher. And he says, do you think I could be a preacher or a missionary someday? And that old pastor replied, well, if God calls you, and God blesses you, and you're faithful, yes, you, you could be a pastor or missionary someday. Years later, a retired missionary came to visit. He had led many people to Christ. Nobles had invited him into their homes. You know who he was? He was that young boy that had said to that old preacher, you think I could be a pastor or a missionary someday? And the preacher said, if God calls you and God blesses you and you'll be faithful. See, what had happened all these years, that old pastor's faithfulness 
had paid off and that young boy and that young boy had led many people to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when it comes to our walk as God's people and it comes to our walk as members of this church, may our prayer be, Lord, help me to be faithful to you, to the abilities and to the opportunities that you give me and according to the strength that you give me and then give me the grace. And here's what we need. Give me the grace and give me the faith to lead the results of all of it to you. Amen. See, we're to be separated, we're to be holy, but we're also to be faithful. And then this one, our family is full of brothers and sisters. Look at what he says. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. To the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ. That word brethren is an interesting word. It's the word Adelphus or Adelphoi. And it's made up of two words. The word A, A, Alpha which means first, because it's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, but the other word, Delphus, has an interesting in meaning. It's the womb. And what it highlights is that there is a common parentage, a common parentage between brothers and sisters in Christ. You know what that common parentage is? We have God as our Father. God is our Father. And here is an expression of our unity, and it's found in brotherly and sisterly love for one another. Now, if you want to know what love will do, you just go to the 13th chapter, 1 Corinthians, and read beginning in the first verse all the way through about the 8th verse, and you will find out what true Christian love does. I want to tell you something. Believe it or not, members of a family will disagree with one another. I've told you many times, my wife and I haven't always agreed. Sometimes she's wrong. I had to wait on that one, didn't I? I will pay for that later. We don't always agree, and we're husband and wife. Growing up, my brother and I didn't always agree, did we? He'd say amen to that, wouldn't he? But I tell you what brother and sister will do, and I've seen it in our own family. A brother and sister may fight like brother and sister, you know, like cats and dogs. But they will defend each other before somebody outside the family. Amen. And that's what's wonderful about being a child of God. We may disagree with one another. We, you know, we have business meeting coming up tonight. And there may some, be some things that we disagree on business-wise. And that's why we take a positive and a negative vote. We don't always agree, but we will defend one another when other people attack us. Amen. And as a family, as a family of believers, as a church family, we must fight to keep the unity that is ours by the common parentage that we have that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what that word endeavoring means? <clears throat> it means to make every effort. Put forth every effort. One source says it's a military term that means strive like a warrior. Just fight like a warrior. So it carries the idea of exerting effort. You know, it takes some effort to have unity. And it should not surprise us as a church family that maintaining unity involves spiritual warfare. Because I'm going to tell you what Satan hates and what Satan loves and what Satan wants to do. Satan hates God. Satan hates God's people. His plan for this church, get this, his plan for this church is to cause us to find ways to disagree among ourselves. 
And in that disagreement to divide, to be bitter, to be jealous, so that we ultimately, according to Galatians chapter 5, bite and devour one another. Amen. That's what Satan wants. And to avoid that, here's what we have to do. Now remember, we're maintaining unity in spiritual warfare. We're doing what the Lord wants us to do. And so sometimes we may have to set aside our pride. Sometimes we may have to set aside our own egos. Sometimes we may have to set aside our desires. Do you know that in all my years of pastoring, the churches I've pastored have not always voted to do things I wanted to do or not to do things I didn't want to do. In fact, I had to tell one church, you voted to do this, you're determined to do it. It's not according to the word of God and I'll not be a party to it. I didn't stay long there. Okay. But folks, we're not always going to agree. And this is something I shared this week, but I'm going to go over it again. I said I don't always put parts of my sermon on Facebook, but I did this one. Seven ways we can contribute to the unity of this church family. Number one, choose daily to pursue God's ways over our own ways. I want God's will done first. I know, yes, I have a will. Yes, I have desires, but I want God's will done first. Number two, reflect on God's commands calling us to love one another. That is not a suggestion from the Lord. That is not a wish. That is a command. Love one another. And that word love is the agape word, the self-sacrificing type of love. You love one another. Number three, focus on areas of agreement more than areas of disagreement. I like that one. You know, people will do that. They'll focus on the disagreements. No, we agree. Think of all the things we agree on. So what if we disagree on the color of the carpet or, you know, whatever else it may be? Think of all the areas in which we agree. Count the cost of disunity because it's high. Number five, judge yourself more than you judge others. Ooh, that's what most people don't want to do. I don't want, I'm, I'm okay. I'm all right. Say, y'all are the ones that are wrong. Right? <laughs> I'm going to judge you. I'm not going to judge me. Well, that's what, how most people act. No, just be willing to judge yourself. If there's something not going just right, go look in the mirror and talk to that person looking back at you. You may find out some things. Number, what is this, six, pursue humility. We should all be humble. The Lord told us that. You know, you know what pursue means? It means to run after something. It means to chase after it. So we're to pursue, we're to chase after humility. I think some people believe humility comes naturally. No, ego and pride come naturally. It takes some work to be on. It takes being like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It takes being like Christ to be humble. And then when there's a disagreement, be the first to seek peace and reconciliation. I'm a peace-loving person. I would rather have peace than have argument any day. And sometimes I'll just say, we'll do it your way rather than argue about it. Because peace means that much. Now, I'm not going to sacrifice the truth for peace. Somebody comes in here and they start promoting something that's foreign to the Word of God, that violates the Word of God, some practice that violates the Word of God. I'll stand up and speak out against it, folks. But sometimes we just need to, when there's a disagreement, we just need to say, what's going to bring peace? and reconciliation to this situation. 
Number four, our victory is in Christ. Look at what he says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, and there's the key word, the key phrase, saints and faithful brethren in Christ. That's one of Paul's favorite expressions, by the way, in Christ. Have you noticed, when you just read some of Paul's letters, look at the number of times he talks about in Christ. It's used more than 160 times in various forms in the Word of God. And you know what it emphasizes? It emphasizes the spiritual position of a child of God. Where are you? You are in Christ. It means that you are united with Him. It means that you are joined with Him. Somebody says, as the limbs are joined to the body. That's how we are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ when we are in Christ. Just look over to the 27th verse of this first chapter of Colossians. He's talking about Jesus, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, that's salvation. When Christ is in you, you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ can't be in you without you being in him. Okay, And so we come to know Christ as Savior and we're in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. In Christ. But then you listen to verse 9, it says, But ye are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We are in Christ, there's no condemnation, and Christ is in us. That's the victory for the child of God. You know what in Christ means? It means that we have died with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it means if you... In Christ, it means you've died with him, but it also means that you know you've been raised with him. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall also raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. See, you say, well, I hadn't been raised up yet. That's okay, you will be. See, if God says something, it's going to happen. And God says, if you know Christ as Savior, whether you die and they put you six feet in the ground or whether you're living when the Lord Jesus comes back, you're going to be raised up together with him. The Apostle Paul said, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if or since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God and the dead of Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. We're going to be raised up. We are in Christ, and in Christ means that we're raised with the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also means we're seated with him. We're seated with him. Ephesians chapter 2, parts of verses 4 through 6. But God, verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He said, by grace you are saved, and I'm thankful that's always in there. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're in him. 
We're saved. We're risen with him. We're seated with him in heavenly places. You know what? And I'll say this for me and I'll say it for you. We are just as good. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're just as good for heaven as if you were there right now. That's the promise of God. In and through Christ, by the way, we have victory over sin. I'll add that one. In and through Christ, we have victory over sin. The scripture says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. We have victory over death. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I said not long ago, I like to win. And folks, I'm a winner. And you are too. We've trusted Jesus. We can't lose. I'll never forget. And I didn't ask him if it was okay to share this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. When Brother Dennis went in for bypass surgery, he said, I'm in a win-win situation. If the surgery's successful, you know, I get to live and be with my family. He said, if it's not, I get to go and be with the Lord. I mean, how can you lose? If you're a child of God, we have the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing who we are and what we have in Christ is the key to earthly victory and eternal victory. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Somebody said this. I'm always quoting somebody. One day I'm going to find out who that somebody is. Somebody said this. To be distressed, look within. To be defeated, look back. To be distracted, look around. To be dismayed, look before. To be delivered, look to Christ. Amen. We have the victory in Christ. And then, our mission is at Colossae. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about us all getting on a plane and flying over to Asia, finding the ruins of ancient Colossae and say, we're going to do a mission work there. That's not what we're talking about, quite obviously. Well, what does it mean? What was Colossae to these believers as Paul addressed them? It was home. Colossae is where they were at that moment to the believers in Colossae. This is a reminder. When it comes to obeying the Great Commission, what is the Great Commission? Go ye therefore and teach, disciple all nations. And then it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. See, to obey that, what does the Lord say in that commission, by the way? What's the first word he says? Go. Go. We live in a day, I think many people expect lost folks just to wander into the church house, hear the gospel, and be saved. That's rare. It can happen. It's rare when it does. We have to go. We have to go to people we know. We have to go to people we work with. We have to go to people we go to school with. We have people have to go to people that we recreate with and carry the gospel message. That's what it means to disciple. You can't make a disciple out of somebody that doesn't know Christ as Savior. And so, when it comes to obeying the Great Commission, here's where we're to begin. Not in the church house, but right where we are. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to those who were gathered there on the Mount of Olives, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem. See, the Mount of Olives is in Jerusalem. 
both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. Both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. You know what Samaria was to the Jew in that day? It's where I don't want to go. The Samaritans were half-breeds. There were Jews who had intermarried with other races, and so they were not. They just didn't fit the profile that some of those Jewish folks thought they ought to fit, and so they said, we don't want any Samaritans. I never shall forget, and I've shared this with you before, little boy, I had, when I had a six, seven, and eight-year-old children's chapel, I was talking about going into all the world, and I said, this was long before the Berlin Wall fell and things like that. And I said, you know, one of these days, if we ever get the chance to go to Russia and preach the gospel in Russia, we ought to do that. And he was sitting there going, uh-uh. He wasn't going to witness to any Russians, you know. <laughs> it's opened up, and we have a missionary that we support in uh, Ukraine. Thank you. Go into all the world. Samaria, the place we don't want to. Is there somebody that you would look upon and say, well, I don't, I don't think that, that person could ever be saved. I don't think I want to witness to that person or witness in that area. Guess what? That's Samaria to you. And the Lord said, go in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then he said to the uttermost part of the earth. Take it into all the world. And we support missionaries throughout the world. We support some right here at home. But that's still not obeying this command. Colossae is right where they were. It was their home. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to take the gospel into all the world, you start at home. Start in your own home. Witness to your family, to your children, and expand out. We must do the same thing. You know, I'm of the opinion that we won't have much enthusiasm for carrying the gospel into the whole world if we're not witnessing right at home. It's real easy to write out a check, and we, like I said, we support missionaries, and it's real easy each month to write out a check to a missionary, send it to a missionary, so we're doing mission work. Well, we're supporting missionaries who are doing the work. Over our exit doors, I don't know if you've looked up lately, I've mentioned it not long ago, but over our exit doors, we have a little card that says you're now entering the mission field. Because outside of this building, out into this world, even our own city is a mission field. It's real romantic, isn't it, to think about going to a foreign land, learning a foreign language, going there and spending years there and, and preaching the gospel to people and seeing people saved. Not quite as romantic to think about in our own language to that next door neighbor that we really don't like telling them about the love of Jesus and showing the love of Jesus to them. That's not quite as romantic as going somewhere overseas, is it? It has been estimated that if all the saved people in the world were lined up single file at your front door, the line would reach around the world 30 times. Now think about the circumference of the earth. Reach around the world 30 times. Now if you were to get in a car and drive 50 miles an hour, 10 hours per day, it would take you four years to get to the end of the line. And by the time you reach that point, that line would be 30,000 miles longer. Unsaved folks are being added to this world every day, folks. And they're being added in greater numbers than people are coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And where does all of it begin? At your front door. Our mission 
is at Colossae. Paul wrote a letter from a prison cell because he had heard there were some false teachers there in Colossae. He had heard there were those who were denying the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wasted no time in emphasizing how their, and by application, our relationship with the Lord Jesus should impact their lives and ought to impact our lives on a daily basis. In this letter, we're, if we go through this on Wednesday nights like I'm thinking about, we're going to find out that Paul emphasized the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said he is before all things in chapter 1 verse 17 and by him all things consist. That word consist means held together. You know what's keeping this world together? Jesus is. Amen. He is the head of the body. Verse 18. The church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. Who's to have the preeminence in this church? Jesus Christ. Amen. Unto him, unto God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. So I don't apologize for lifting up the Lord Jesus and preaching Jesus when we have services. And then he said in chapter 2 verse 9, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That's chapter 1 verse 19. Chapter 2 verse 9 says, For in him, talking about Jesus, all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in the Lord Jesus. You know, somebody said, Once you said Jesus, you said it all. And that's true. Jesus should have that same preeminence, not just in this church, folks. But if we know him as Savior, if we profess to know him as Savior, Jesus ought to have that same preeminence in our lives on a daily basis. What does preeminence mean? First place, right? He is the one who we talk about, who we glorify. He is the one we love. He is the one we follow. And we ought to have the preeminence because the Christian life is to be a life lived in submission to the Lord Jesus. Our faith in Christ should transform our home life and it ought to transform our church life because in Him, our calling is to be holy. Our walk is to be faithful. Our family is full of brothers and sisters that we love. Our future is one of victory and our mission is to the entire world. I'll say again, there's a lot of folks in this town, we may not think about it sometimes, a lot of folks in this town that just don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. You may run across them on a daily basis, you may not. But they need to hear about Jesus. I said at the outset that that word Christian is used so loosely today. Anybody that goes to church calls himself a Christian. Anybody who reads a Bible, calls themselves a Christian. But when it comes right down to it, if you want to find out what a Christian is, you just take the Bible, you study the life of Christ, and you say, that's the pattern I want to follow. I want to be just like Jesus. You know that was Paul's desire? Just read the third chapter of the book of Philippians. May we as a people, may we as individuals, may we as a church have that as our desire. Number one, above everything else, to be like Jesus Christ and then to proclaim him and his preeminence to this world.